The AI Today podcast, produced by Cognolytica, cuts through the hype and noise to identify what is really happening now in the world of artificial intelligence. Learn about emerging AI trends, technologies, and use cases from Cognolytica analysts and guest experts. Hey, AI Today listeners. Want to dive deeper and get resources to drive your AI efforts further? We've put together a carefully curated collection of resources and tools handcrafted for you, our listeners, to expand your knowledge, dive deeper into the world of AI, and provide you with the essential resources you need. From books and materials ranging from fundamentals of AI to deep dives on implementing AI projects to AI ethics, tools, software, checklists, and more, our resources page will help you on your AI journey whether you're just starting out or you're well on your way. Check it out at aitoday.live slash list. That's aitoday.live slash L-I-S-T. Hello, and welcome to the AI Today podcast. I'm your host, Kathleen Mulch. And I'm your host, Ronald Schmelzer. And thanks again for joining us on AI Today, going strong here five years and hitting our 300th episode pretty soon. And one of the things you might have noticed uh, for a lot of our longtime subscribers that one, our frequency of podcasts has actually been going up. We used to be weekly, well, posting on Wednesdays generally, but now we're twice a week. And um, part of the reason for that is we've added this glossary series. And you might be thinking, after all of these years of doing AI, why are we now getting into basic terms definitions. And maybe it'll surprise you, maybe it won't surprise you, but there are a lot of people who still are having trouble understanding basic terms and concepts around artificial intelligence and machine learning and big data. And you know some of the concepts are kind of difficult to understand. We understand that. But sometimes people are using, misusing uh, terms. So we, so if you stay subscribed, you will see this uh, for a, a long, we have a lot of podcasts queued up here where we go into each term or maybe a few related terms and define them. But you're also on AI Today to hear from others who are helping provide some context to AI. And especially in doing AI right, we still see a lot of challenges in running AI projects right. And you might have heard us repeatedly say that sometimes it's not what you do, but it's the way that you do it. I won't sing for you, but uh, that brings us to, we have a special guest for you today. Exactly. So as Ron mentioned, we do love to have experts and interviews on AI Today as well so that our community can learn from others. And we've started to see a big overlap with project management and AI and the need to understand some of these you know, basic project management skills so that you can successfully run your AI projects. And we said, what better way to do that than to bring in Uh, project management experts from different podcasts. So we're so excited to have with us today, Bob Payne, who's the host of the Agile Toolkit podcast. Bob, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks, uh, Kathleen and Ron. Uh, Excited to be here Um, and excited to see where the conversation takes us. Us too. We always love interviews. We have no idea where they're going to (laughs) go. So we'd like to start by having you first introduce yourself to our listeners and tell them a little bit about your background, your podcast, and maybe why you started your podcast. Sure. Um, so my background is is fairly varied. Um, started life in a family restaurant uh, in in high school and college. I got my master's in um, computer architectures for AI, uh, and this was before Moore's law killed that idea. We 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 thought that we we're going to need specialized computers for artificial intelligence um, applications. So like connection machine and 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 um and systems that would run lisp as an operating system or or silicon that would support neural nets that ship sailed uh and now we 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 see that ai uh, platforms can be handled on uh standard uh computing architectures but as part of that i i part of that program i started programming i was doing lisp and prolog and a lot of the um, earlier languages in the AI space, um, and like Star Fortran, which was a parallelizable Fortran, um, and um, I never really did anything with my master's in electrical engineering. I went straight into uh, programming and uh, software development. Um, really worked my way up through. Did a lot of a lot of Python and Java. 
um, and eventually was, and I'll use air quotes here, promoted um, to a project manager because there was not, it sort of capped out as, as an architect. There really wasn't a technical track in the organization that I was in. And I got really um, frustrated with uh, the state of uh, project management and project delivery. Um, and, and honestly, I, I, I forgot many of the things that I had learned in engineering. So um, I was really frustrated with the fact that things kept changing, the schedules were impossible, estimates that we had done early on uh, had really no bearing on, on or little bearing on the actual time that it would take to execute something. And um, I, I went to my, my uh, development manager and I said, you know, this is really frustrating. I, I see other um, project managers who are not frustrated by this. And he said, you know what? You probably need a course in Microsoft Project. Um, and I ten, uh, tendered my resignation because I knew that wasn't the problem. It wasn't, it wasn't a tool problem. It was some fundamental underlying problem. Um, and I did so without a plan. So um, I wandered out into the world. I happened to uh, attend a conference called Star East, uh, which is a testing conference. It happened to be in D.C. This was in 99. And happened to run into gentlemen by the, well, gentlemen's a strong word. Uh, Ron wouldn't call himself that, but Ron Jeffries um, talking about uh, the first XP book, um, XP Explained. And, um, and he was talking about this new iterative incremental way of delivering software. Uh, XP is really focused on software delivery. There are other agile methods that focus on any type of knowledge work, but um, and and it was all about creating a learning cycle, a small empirical process where we make some assumptions, say this is what we're going to do in two weeks. Um, and then we try to take a look at reality. What did we actually get done? Um, and, and in XP, there are lots and lots of really amazing engineering techniques that I think echo uh, in today's uh, world uh, with DevOps and automated testing and those sorts of things. But but fundamentally, we would plan to do something, we would execute, we would check, and then we would adjust. And this is nothing more than the Deming uh, empirical process loop. So, and, and this looks a lot like electrical engineering in, in, in my day where a lot of things were done by breadboarding. You would come up with a design, breadboard it with real components, um, and then run run the thing to see if it actually worked the way you thought it would. You would learn from that. You would iterate and improve the design over time. And you would probably evolve not only what you were trying to accomplish, but how you were trying to um, accomplish it. And, that, and that, that was very much a natural engineering process. I mean, now most of that work uh, would be done in CAD uh, and simulation, but you're still checking your design through simulation. So I immediately um, said, I want to do this for a little while, extreme programming. And um, very shortly after that introduction in uh, 99, um, had Ron Jeffries as my first coach. He always complained that, that you know, we only had him for a couple of couple of sections, but just sort of ran with it. Um, and in uh, 2001, we ran into a, a problem with a client that had a major stabilization recovery um, project that we needed to take over. And we, we did a scaled extreme programming model. Uh, so immediately started delivering products using extreme programming and helping others deliver an XP in 2004, got introduced to um, Scrum. I uh, was one of the early Scrum trainers uh, in 2005 and have been fundamentally delivering and helping others deliver 
using what we now term as agile methods. When it was first introduced in 99, it was just extreme programming. Scrum was out there, feature-driven development, some other methods, but, but the term agile hadn't yet been coined. Um, 2005, again, um, I was at um, conference. Uh, I had been listening to a couple of podcasts, uh, used to be in bands and like audio gear. So have sort of a, a toy syndrome with different, um, different audio, uh, equipment and, uh, decided that I would start my own podcast. So I brought some mics, uh, brought a field recorder, um, some outboard effects equipment to kind of keep the noise down a little bit in the background and started recording just live conversations. Um, and folks like who folks in the agile community will, uh, will know, but folks like Bob Martin, Ron Jeffries, um, Esther Derby, uh, from just a lot of the early thinkers and, and, and delivery people in the agile community and, and kind of kept that up on and off to the present day. So I've been doing it for a long time. You have many more podcasts, uh, than I I do. I'm at about 200. Um, but I'm, I'm, again, I'm not as prolific. I do a few here and there. Um, in the community, I'm the, I am the chair of the Agile DC conference, uh, sort of the biggest regional conference here in the DMV. I know you guys are up in Maryland. And, um, I'm also at a company called Lightspeed. Um, we're coaching, consulting, training company specializing in lean and agile um, methods. Uh, and um, there I'm the SVP of uh, agile training and coaching. So that's a little bit of my, my background. Um, and honestly, I didn't have a huge reason to start the podcast other than I was relatively new to this new community. Um, it, so I didn't know a lot of the personalities and that gave me an excuse to sit down and have a conversation with um, experts, practitioners, and um, and help me just meet a lot of the a lot of the folks that I know today, and a lot of the folks that are out there in the in the as thought leaders in the space. So, well, that was a fantastic introduction, and uh, some of those names might be new to our listeners. So, I think you should check. Yeah, them. yeah, yeah. And one that you will, uh, and one of my favorite, um, and I have many favorite. They're, sort of like my children, but uh, guess was a gentleman by the name of Ward Cunningham. And if you're not familiar with Ward, you are familiar with the tool uh, and, and technology that he built. He built the first wiki. So if you've ever used a wiki, Confluence or Wikipedia, then uh, you know you know of Ward's work, but mm -hmm. even if you don't know the name. But. Well, that's fantastic. And I think yep. that's part of, of what this cross-pollination is. And on your podcast, which we'll be sharing, we'll talk about Luminaries that people may not know from the AI space and data space, yeah. like Jeff Hinton and you know uh, Andrew Ng and all sorts of interesting people who are doing interesting things. But of course, that's what these podcasts are all about: providing uh, you exposure to new things. And actually, it's interesting that you mentioned the hardware approaches to AI that mm -hmm. you were involved in, which is a really interesting overlap. We weren't expecting that uh, level of of experience and depth. I remember those days, thinking machines back up when I was in Cambridge, uh, back in our backyard. There, Lisp and symbolic systems. Oh my mm -hmm. goodness! Yep. They're bringing up, bringing up the old days of expert systems. That well, we talk about that actually in some of our podcasts. How didn't quite come to fruition. It did not. I, I was working <laughs> on data flow machines. Um, yeah, but. Well, good. And I would say for our podcast listeners, we do actually have glossary topics on symbolic systems and expert systems. So you can Great. learn about all of those and decision trees and how uh, maybe they'll time will come again in the future. That's the thing about AI. These things just keep coming in cycles and waves and we may come back here. But let's actually dig into it a little bit mm -hmm. because I just said we just are talking about AI and agile and project management. And there is an overlap and you and your your fantastic amount of experience in, you know, in the trenches actually implementing this. Also, having been through this whole history of how we've gotten here, you know, so how do you see these areas of of agile and AI intersecting? And um, yeah, maybe I'll just give it to you at that general level. Sure. Um, well, um, and and here I'll here again I'll go back to the engineering process uh, when we were 
uh, trying to build hardware to run um, AI. I mean, one of the things that we needed to do is we had a few um, sort of sample programs that we would try to run on different um, architectures to to see what what would best support, say, um, Prolog or, or some heuristics system or data flow or neural net. And, and it was all about um, either in, in simulation, um, running those example programs on, on a potential target hardware platform, um, and not really knowing the outcome, right? It, was, it really was a true experiment. We had a hypothesis. We think um, this type of computer platform will support uh, this type of program well uh, and do it better than uh, commercial systems and we would we would experiment so um, it all it was all about that iterative incremental feedback that I that I talked about um, in in um, agile methods and AI systems are for the and and there are certainly some exceptions and you guys may know more about that than I do but AI systems need to be trained. Um, and they tend to be non-deterministic. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, and, and when we think about project management and project delivery, it's never about the tools. It, and this goes back maybe to the Agile Manifesto um, uh, a bit, but it's, we have processes and tools, but we're focused on individuals and interactions. And when we bring people into the equation, it is a non-deterministic system. So, and I don't want to get way too wonky there, but fundamentally, when we're trying to develop uh, an algorithm that we think might be trainable, um, or or whether we're doing neural nets, or um, we need to set up a system, and then we're going to run samples by it, either sample language or images or whatever, or data sets to to try to pull patterns out of um, those things. And we fundamentally don't know whether our algorithm will, we don't know how it will perform until we do it. So this, this idea that came out in Agile, where we're going to start with the knowledge we have now, we're going to build something or simulate something, see how it performs, and then use that data to improve our, 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 our process going forward, improve both how we create that AI system, how we work together as knowledge workers to construct and to train and to, you know, feed and procure the data. Um, so they're very, very similar in the fact that they require an empirical iterative incremental learning process. And we don't necessarily have a deterministic end in mind. And, and with Waterfall, we kind of say, this is exactly what we want to build. We make our best guess at how to build it. If we don't know exactly what we need to build, we can't make a plan. So we've got to iterate our way into this. And with non-deterministic systems, such as a, such as AI systems or human systems, um, you, you, you have um, what's called a wicked problem. You don't know exactly how you're going to solve it. You need to experiment your way forward. So there's, there's a great overlap conceptually between AI and Agile and a requirement in my mind that you can't really tackle. You can tackle some parts of AI development uh, with some level of planning, but you're never going to know exactly where you're going to get or how you're going to get there. Um, and, you know, obviously with, with certain tools today and certain data analytics platforms, the more we work with different types of data, we might have a better guess, but fundamentally you could, you can run into an edge condition where the AI system thinks that chair is a cat. 
Uh, oh yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah. and <laughs> our listeners know we talk about probabilistic. You say right. non-deterministic, but also you know that the opposite yeah. of that is probabilistic systems, and that's what that's what we are dealing with, right? So we don't always know the outcome, as you mentioned, and you can't kind of code your way to the solution. We also talk a lot about how data is the heart of AI, especially mm-hmm. in machine learning, and that these are fundamentally data projects. So you need to understand how to manage a data project, understand that data is incredibly important for the success, right? Because if you're learning from data, then you better have good quality data, enough data mm-hmm. that you need all of that. And you're right, you can't, uh, we we also use this term wagile, where it's agile and waterfall kind of a combination. You can't run your AI projects with a waterfall approach. It's just not going to work. And plus, the timeline's going to be way too long. I mean, right. you can't yeah. spend 12 months to get a model iteration out. That's way too long. I mean, think about what changes in the world in 12 months. We always talk about that. And when we're following best practices methodologies, we say, and, and we're advocates our listeners know we're advocates of CPM AI, the Cognitive Project Management for AI methodology. It's supposed to be iterative, those short iterative sprints, so that you're getting out there, you're taking, you're you're understanding how to properly scope the project. We always say think big, start small, and iterate often, so that we're not thinking big and then going big like with waterfall, right? And you have to do the entire project from start to finish, and there's mm-hmm. no iterative loops in there. So um, so it's, it's always great to hear this. This is why we like to have guests on so that it's not just us saying this, but it's, uh, you know, others as well. And specifically, what are the characteristics of an agile delivery method? Maybe explain that at a high level for our listeners mm-hmm. if they're not familiar with that. And what are the overlaps with this iterative approach to AI and data delivery? Yeah, so um, we covered a bit on the, um, on the AI, but um, fundamentally... I think um, as we look at those iterative incremental processes, yes, we do want a direction. So I I like the idea of uh, start big and iterate small. Um, And with both the AI algorithms, if we can't be certain and we have some probability of, of being right, but it's rarely a hundred percent. We may also not know exactly what data we need or in what form or format. So I think one of the big mistakes, if we see AI and data, those two communities, when they overlap, and here I have a lot more experience on the data space because I've not done um, AI projects since I was uh, in my master's program, but I've done a lot of ton of data. And the data community is, um, and I, I don't, this is not as pejorative as I, as I, it probably will sound, but it's fairly conservative. Go ahead. Cause there's a lot yeah. of pejoratives of data. People, people sure. only hear a lot of pejoratives of data. Um, and, and, it is conservative in that there is a philosophy that if we just get the models right, we can support any future data needs. Now, if this were ever true, it would have been true in the past, and it has never been true. The needs of the software, even if we're talking about regular, just plain old commercial transactional software, always needs to evolve. Why does it need to evolve? The regulatory environment, the market, the needs of the organization evolve. So you can only define a perfect data architecture, data model, um, um, if you perfectly know the future and and no one does. So fundamentally, one of the things that a lot of data folks struggle with is they, they do this waterfall upfront big design. They put in models and elements that they believe might be needed. Some of them are. Some of them aren't. Um, The ones that are needed sometimes need to be augmented or need to be fed with different attributes or, um, you know, other other data sources. We will will undoubtedly need to uh, manage data. Um, And that's if it is structured data. We're also dealing with a huge 
propensity of unstructured data that we do not have any control of. The source that's producing that data gets to decide what's in the data, what's not. And, and, and we can't anticipate how they will change. So, um, so there's this principle in, um, in agile engineering that that really it was around before, but really came to a head in extreme programming and is carried through to DevOps and a lot of the amazing engineering practices we have today. And that is this idea of evolutionary architecture and evolutionary design. And here the analogy is a little bit strained, but if you look at, and here we'll talk about a biological environment. If you look at uh, an environment that hasn't undergone any severe change, all of the organisms seem to be perfectly suited for the environment they're in. And yet they have changed over time. So in this idea of evolutionary architecture, given the needs of what we need now, is our data, um, is our design, is our architecture well factored to support that? And some people talk about technical debt, um, but we're always focusing on if we want to be able to change the design, uh, change the use of our data, then we need to fundamentally start with the assumption that we will change, we will change often. And when we make those changes, we're going to put and refactor the system, have the best current design that we can. And if you do that, and the system looks well-designed for now, and in a month it looks well-designed for now because you've refactored along the way, um, then you're, it's hard to foresee some future barring any sort of major event where you're not well-factored for the, for the deeds of the current system. And, and so there's this clash between this conservative build it once, build it right. And here I'm going to use air quotes around right because we can't know what right is. And, and, and the agile engineering practices and principles that says we can only build for right, right now. Like we can only keep the system well factored for now. And if we do that, and if we do that knowing that we're going to be constantly evolving the, the design in some some fundamental or subtle way. And if we're rigorous about that, then we can support those those shocks of future needs and changing requirements. And you know, and and honestly, you look at a big pile of data and and ask, is there some algorithm, let's say we've got financial data, can we detect some rare disease out of this this financial data and you're like i don't know maybe maybe not you know there's just i mean that's an extreme case but um um so the idea that we will bring let's get all of our models and objects right into a space where unstructured data is not the exception it's it's increasingly the norm into uh in into a an environment where we've got these project management aspects trying to say we need to lock down the future and a future that doesn't care about being locked down. It's just, it, it is a complete mismatch again of, of, um, of the realities that we need to deal with when we're dealing with uncertain future and uncertain technology that's changing rapidly. Um, and this idea of, of like Plato's, um, you know, canonical shapes of like a perfect triangle and a perfect circle. And th these are immutable ideas. It just, it's, it's, it is a fundamental incompatibility, um, of those domains. And, and yeah. that's where I think teams run into problems. And, and they certainly are. <laughs> yeah, in in, in, yeah. in the vast, actually, not even in a minority cases, probably in the the majority of cases, um, some of the analysts and some of the other researchers in the space are saying something like seventy five to eighty percent of AI projects are failing, mm -hmm. and not like failing in terms of uh, just sort of a conceptual disappointment. No, they're being canceled and they're being shuttered, and 
Um, you know, they're not realizing the returns. And there's many reasons to it, but a lot of time it really does settle on exactly what you mentioned. These are recurring themes, which is that in an environments of constant change and non-deterministic probabilistic systems, you're rewarded for narrowing the scope of your assumptions, right? The more you assume, the more risk you're basically assuming. And Mm -hmm. we tell people, it's like, you know, you can have these long-term projects, but you know, the more you expand the scope, you know, you are, you are, you're giving yourself this big field full of all sorts of unknowns that that you're just trying to do it. So, so, um, you know, we're telling, you know, you have to be adaptive and you have to, to, to be, you know, agile, both in terms of flexible as a concept, but also mm-hmm. agile in terms of approaches is fantastic. You know, and this is actually one of the, the, the core ideas. And I think a lot of folks uh, like yourselves who have experience with many different methodologies and approaches mm-hmm. may look at something like the, the cognitive project management for AI may actually seem more like a framework than a methodology or more mm-hmm. of a sure. process. That's the, that's the problem with terminology especially the English language, which is very imprecise. But, um, and it, it's really, it's the idea that we're supposed to be addressing the right thing at the right time. There's this tendency in AI and data projects of any sort to sort of rush ahead with presupposing, if you will, kind mm-hmm. of kind of what the shape of the problem should be. And then trying to fit the data into it and not realize till after you've made this big investment that you don't have the data you need. It's not in the form that you require. And this little project that might have you have expected, like, oh, it's only to take a month. You're like, yes, but you're going to spend the next six months trying to clean this petabyte of data that you got from who knows where that's missing fields that doesn't mm-hmm. even have what you want. And like, could you not have scaled the project back so that instead of trying to Say well, we're going to try to build a new uh, model to predict what you know videos we should recommend with Netflix on petabytes of customer data. We're like, maybe we could have you know scoped this down just a little bit to not make it a twelve month because by the end of your project, the realities mm-hmm. of a viewership have probably changed anyway. So sure. this is a very common problem, and and part of the CPMAI process is these six steps, which have been around. Just like things like Agile and, and XP have been around for decades, mm-hmm. CRISP-DM predates CPMAI, goes back to 1999, the cross-industry standard process for data mining. It just mm-hmm. hadn't really been updated. So uh, we tell people, you know, take a look. We have actually have a free, we, if people want to learn about CPMAI, you can get that information for free. Uh, we have our intro to CPMAI course. It's like a little mm-hmm. mini course. So if you go to AIToday.live, slash CPMEI. This is for our listeners. If you go to AIToday.live slash CPMEI, you can take a take this a two-hour course introduction to the six-step process and helps you do that. Now, of course, if you want to do that for your job and if you want to signal to employers that you know that, that's sort of the role of the more fundamental training and certification. But at mm-hmm. the very least, get that, you know, the, the education is one of the easiest uh, things you can do to invest in yourself. Uh, Kathleen always says, you know, it's a growth mindset. That's the most important thing. So maybe this actually brings us to our next question here, which is about misunderstanding. So mm-hmm. you know, what do you see people commonly misunderstand about project management, mm-hmm. about methodologies, you know, especially technologists who may be great subject matter experts, but there's this cognitive dissonance when it comes to project management. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a fairly, uh, deep and wide expanse of, of the, you know, never underestimate the misunderstandings of, um, people, especially in large numbers. Um, I mean, one, so the, there are probably a few that I think we can, we can highlight, um, from a technologist perspective. I think one of the biggest problems uh, they run into is they believe the solution is a technical solution, especially as that relates to the project um, work. Um, and 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 while processes and tools are fundamentally important and required, um, we're really talking about aligning. Unless you have a one-person shop. We're aligning the interests and needs of knowledge workers around trying to get some stuff done, whatever that happens to be, whether it's an AI project, data project, or building a mobile app, right? You know, um, um, and without that internal alignment of people driving towards at least some maybe smaller interim goals, let's see what 
this next thing produces, and we'll build on that. Um, so quite often we have we don't have alignment in the people delivering the work. And then we fundamentally are not aligned with the marketplace or real value. Um, one of the biggest problems I see project managers, and we've trained them to do this, um, you know, my what are my three, you know, the, the iron triangle of success, scope, schedule, and cost. So I if I build the wrong thing that the market doesn't care about, um, on schedule cost, we're cool. That's green. That's success. And that's just fundamentally wrong. Value is determined. I mean, in, in lean thinking, value is determined by the customer, right? Um, so we, we can do our best to deliver, you know, from Toyota, uh, sort of the grand parents of lean, uh, we can deliver a Camry, but if nobody buys it, all of that engineering, all of that very precise work, all of that quality control gets flushed down the toilet. Um, in software, we have a really bad hit rate for, um, for ideas that bring value to um, the customers or users or the consumers of our product. Um, Chaos Report in 2001 had it at about 64% of features were rarely or never used. Here we're talking about regular software features. Um, on one of my podcasts, I talked to uh, Sam Guggenheimer, who's the um, chief product owner, was at the time, uh, I'm not sure what he's doing now, but chief product owner for Azure DevOps team platform. And in in their look back study, they found about the same. A third of the things that they put out added value. A third were neutral. A third took value away. And there's a reason for this. And it's really a very simple human reason. When we say we want to build something or we think this algorithm will be valuable, we can call it a requirement, but it's really just an idea. It's a hypothesis. And I, I pity the person who's listening to this podcast that believes uh, that they have perfect ideas um, about the future in, in any realm. Um, and why do I pity them? Because they're probably delusional. Uh, and if they just ask any adult around them, they'll realize they don't have perfect ideas. Um, so, so this, and I'm going to use the word idea twice, this idea that we can have perfect ideas is built into Waterfall. We know what we want to build, how to build it. That's our scope. We know it would be worthwhile if we could get it by this time and for this cost, because we've already presumed the value but it is a totally bogus variable to throw in the equation because we don't know if it will be valuable. The agile bet is we're probably wrong in some smaller fundamental way. The quicker we can get feedback from people that might find this value valuable, the quicker we can learn if we're wrong. If we're not wrong, cool. Nobody wants to be wrong. Uh -huh. But if I am wrong, I want to know as quickly as possible so I can steer in a hopefully better direction. There is no guarantee that we will find that nugget of gold at the end of the rainbow that will actually produce some amazing product of value, but without steering guided by real feedback, the analogy of steering works. If I try to drive blindfolded, right? Unless I'm in a self-driving car, <laughs> I'm kind of in trouble. Right, I, I need to use the feedback from where my car is on the road, whether an animal is or person is or car is out in front of me. Right, we need to have these learning loops built into the system if we're gonna not crash. Um, and that goes to your 75% of, of, of programs crashing. So, I think the tools are the problem, and it's purely a techno technology problem. Um you know, I can build a perfect architecture, highly scalable, highly resilient. And if nobody buys it, it's not valuable. And if I'm answering a question 
through AI that nobody cares about, it's also not valuable. Now, there's a good chance I can't answer the question, but but if I am successful at that, then classic project management would have said, you're green, we're cool, scope, schedule, and calls. Uh, but there are too many unknowns and there are fundamental assumptions about what will be valuable is one of them. You, you talked about video recommendations. Um, organizations like Netflix, like Amazon, um, are constantly testing us. They're using us as their guinea pigs for, if we recommend this, will we get more click-throughs? Um, and, and, and the algorithms are, are, are both driving behavior, but also learning from and responding to behavior. And, and they also very quickly kill the algorithms that don't cause more clicks because that's where the cash is right so so those companies are constantly experimenting they can't know exactly what's right because they're dealing with people and with evolving choice landscapes and and evolving markets and evolving preferences and so um so those those types of organizations see an iterative incremental learning process, not as a competitive advantage, but fundamentally a survival mechanism that if they don't do this and do it well, someone else is going to eat their lunch or take their, their, their market share. And, and I see sort of down chain, um, you know, and maybe that's not the nicest way to say it, but I see a lot of these organizations that are trying to think about this space and they're, they're, they're making the wrong assumptions about, you know, we want to do long-term planning like, um, like Amazon, or we want to do long-term planning <laughs> like Netflix surprise. They don't do, they right. certainly have a long-term plan, but that is more like world domination and not, not how here's how we get there. Right. Yeah. Um, so it's it's un, it's actually sort of unfortunate that what you're saying is completely correct. You know that that a lot of these organizations have moved to this continuous iteration, continuous development styles. And Facebook, uh, one the now Meta was famous for saying, you know, move fast and break things. Right. But actually, unfortunately, what we've seen over the past uh, maybe deck half decade to decade is that even that system has become very poorly operated. Right. And what you'll find, this is a very frustrating experience for us as technology users, not even as sort of, you know, inside the, the technology sausage making machine. We know how it works. It's mm -hmm. like, you know, you find that you use a feature and all of a sudden that feature is gone or that you'll, you'll some aspect of a product was in there. And next thing you know, that product is, is killed. And you're thinking, wait, I thought these people were constantly listening to their customers. Then you first you say, well, first of all, who is the customer? Mm -hmm. You have to ask that very important question. The customer is most likely not the user, the most right. customer the ad client or something like that. But even in that situation, what we have found happens is that there's sometimes this sort of like, I don't know, maybe it's the extreme version of extreme where there's mm -hmm. movement for movement's sake and right. there's iteration for iteration's sake and that they're testing the wrong variables and they're saying, well, if I change this button and I move it over here and I change the color, I'm optimizing for a click rate, but also like, well, wait a second, you just mm -hmm. moved a functionality. Now no one's can find it. No one's using it. It, it doesn't, you know, it's sort of like optimizing for the wrong things. And I don't, and it sometimes it's not really, you You might think that there's some intel, <laughs> human intelligence going in here to scope it, but a lot of times it's not happened. There's all this commentary in the industry on how uh, developers are motivated for these internal, these OKRs and these other goals that mm -hmm. are not connected with any, not even, not only uh, user customer demand, but also not even business demand in some cases. So mm -hmm. it's, it's, um, there's a lot of this uh, project development momentum. It's very frustrating. And I just want to relate to something funny. You were talking about the aut the autonomous vehicle, the self-driving mm -hmm. vehicle. And, and if I said, well, remember, we said all AI systems are probabilistic. So first of all, we don't have level five autonomous vehicles quite yet. But how, would if, how about if I told you, it's like, yes, your autonomous vehicle has got a 96% chance of getting you to your destination safely and on time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
<laughs> Not well, a- then, I, then I have to weigh that against the fact that I'm a terrible driver, and that may be better than my you know, stats. Well, my odds are only 83%. So, so <laughs> it's really, really good. But I don't, I don't know, maybe a quick feedback. Have you seen any of this sort of like maybe the other side of the uh, spectrum where people are just like overturning and overdeveloping and sometimes missing the mark even that way? Um, certainly. Um, and, um, one of the, one of the main things I believe they're missing is really, um, so you can do scrum or some other agile process, um, and deliver the wrong thing. Um, many OKRs are all around, uh, ob- objectives, key results are about measuring intermediate um, things like how quickly we can release features. Um, but ultimately, I think the, 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 that is short-sighted in that it is optimizing for IT and development. And, and, and fundamentally, business agility, typically the, and this is going to sound odd, to project people, typically the bottleneck is not delivery, especially if they're using something like Scrum. We 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 had a um, client, um, Kevin Fisher was on 2018. There was a um, uh, recorded talk that he gave at the DevOps Enterprise Summit, and they 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 found that um, in in their organization, if if we just take the simple idea of a feature, we believe this thing is valuable whether it is or not, um, they, they just simply traced the total time between when we had that idea and when it was in the user's hand. We didn't, weren't even closing the full validation loop. And it turned out that on average, about one and a half to two and a half percent of that time was spent on the Agile team. The rest was in yearly long-term planning, um, all of the business processes up, to bring that work to development team. We don't release just a single feature. They're bundling it up into large releases, batching it up and, and, and releasing. So any optimization that made that scrum team more efficient through local OKRs did absolutely zero to the ability to run things through the entire system. So end to end, Agility and time to value analysis, or however you want to look at it, is critical. Once you get a short enough time frame, then you need to ask the more important question is this actually valuable? And how can we learn that from the marketplace? Maybe we do, we think moving the button or changing the color is valuable. Maybe we release that to a small percentage of our customers and see. Uh, you know, maybe we get real feedback from real users talking about the things that are released. Um, we work with a, and I won't mention names, we work with several companies. One is in, in the supports educators and students. Um, and their internal product development is a, people inside the bubble wondering what teachers and students would like and, and not enough time validating that before they, they build it. And, and then they wonder why they're having low uptake on new, new features or f- frustrations because now a teacher can't do something that they used to know how to do in the system. So, uh, you know, uh, I, uh, until we take the lean approach, and here we're going back 80 years, probably even a little bit longer. Some of those fundamental ideas of cu- value is created in the hands of the customer or user. Also, you have to understand that sometimes the users are not the customers, right? So especially with um, any any service that's free, you are the product. Um, so um, so and you're being sold to some somebody. Um, so you need to really untangle it and, and look at what is the business proposition and, and how, how, how can speedy, effective, quality delivery 
be utilized in the most um, most valuable way. If you can't build stuff, first thing we got to do is get you able to build stuff. Maybe it's agile, maybe it's some other lean technique or some other, you know, go back to spiral or rapid application development. Don't care. Once you can deliver something, the problem has moved. The problem is now a business problem. But but it, and it happens immediately once you're able to deliver something. Then we need to figure out how do we validate that this thing is valuable? How do we get feedback? How do we kill the losers, right? Um, you know, if if we're working on an idea that is not going to bear fruit, we've got to, you know, perish, persist, or pivot. Um, you know, perish, we're gonna the three P's of lean startup. This is this is not a good idea. Let's spend our time and energy someplace else. Persist. This seems to be adding value. Let's let's continue down this path and and see where it takes us. Or pivot, right? Um, we may need to tweak the things we're delivering or how we're delivering them. Um, and and until from a business, from an organizational goal, from a market goal, from a customer goal, user goal, you start analyzing the environment then you're just shooting blind you're just you're guessing making your best guess which is probably bad um so so that's where i think we traditional project management goes off the off the rails it makes some faulty assumptions about the way the world works yeah, you know, I think this this has been such a great podcast. You've brought up a lot of different points, maybe some new terms to our listeners as well that uh, you know they haven't been introduced to. So sure. it's I'm been sure wonderful. I dropped a lot. So <laughs> I, I hopefully, hopefully, yeah, happy to explain any of the ones. Spiral because I'm like, wow, I don't know, familiar with that one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was all about it was in the '60s prototyping, um, validating another prototype, validate, you know, build up real some real sections of the the system and then either build on them or throw them away and start over until you oh, get the product them. race. Yeah, the, they might. No new ideas, just old ideas keep coming around because it's the MVP. New terms, it's, bottled as new. Yeah, it's yeah. the M- M- MVP, yep. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And also your iron triangle of success. You you have Mm -hmm. a few a few terms that we haven't used before on the podcast. So uh, so thank you for introducing our listeners to that. That is why we have these podcast swaps, because we want to bring in all those, you know, different ideas. So with that, we always wrap our podcasts with a final question, because no matter how many times we've asked this to different guests, they always get to bring their unique perspective to this. Some people get very philosophical. Others are very practical. Uh, others talk about personally what they'd like to see. So um, as a as a final question, what do you believe the future of AI is in general and its application to corporations and beyond? So um, so it, it was starting out in the, and here I'm dating myself in the, in the 80s in AI, the joke was AI is the next biggest thing and always will be. Um, But I think we've reached an inflection point where that joke is no longer funny (laughs) and and no longer true. Um, Yeah, Uh, because, you know, for for the longest time um, and here we're we're talking about work that started in the 50s and 60s, the assumption was that we would we could come up with a model for how we learn and implement that in some combination of silicon and software. And we've done a really crappy job. And for the longest time, now we're actually in a world where in in some constrained domains, we're getting really good results. So, you know, in the very near future, I will not be surprised if radiologists find themselves either fully supported or fully supplanted by um, by the ability of an AI system to at least take that first crack at reading the images. Cars can probably drive better than I can today. Probably not better than my wife. She's an airline pilot or, or was. Um, and is a, an amazing driver and navigator. Um, 
and, and relatively quick, quickly, um, driving will be a luxury hobby for folks that want to do it themselves. And the rest of us will just zip around and parse. I don't know what that window looks like. It's going to take a while. Um, we've got some amazing things happening in AI generated, generative AI, music for a long time, art now, um, natural language processing is, is, um, getting much better. Um, probably at the point where at least some people believe we're passing the Turing test, um, with that. We have not, that we are aware of, um, realized generalized artificial intelligence, generalized intelligence where um, AI can kind of say, Hey, I'd like to learn this and, and can act on that, uh, that internally generated intent. Although we're getting closer, we have systems like AlphaGo that you give it a new type of game and it can learn how to play chess or, or, or really almost any other uh, game, and it can learn much more quickly than humans can. We've already seen that algorithms may have broken what we refer to as democracy, whether that's a whole political argument, whether, whether you know, how much of that is just a representative and versus. But um, we, we've got uh, deep fakes that are going to allow people to do amazing things by having Darth Vader in a movie in 2021. Um, or uh, we'll be able to sow disinformation in really powerful ways supported by, by AI. We've also seen um, AI algorithms driving, doing two things, suggesting that movie that you're like, I didn't even really think about that or, or something on the Spotify playlist that I'm like, Wow, this, I really like this, and I never ran into this band. And, and we also have algorithms driving um, uh, information wormholes that are now reducing the ability to have a, um, you know, a, a common set of facts or beliefs. I mean, that's always been a problem in humanity, but but for a while it looked like you know we might be getting there with science and now that i think is um is problematic so there are a few things a lot of great possibilities for both society um uh, for corporations to benefit but there are a lot of downsides and i think we're doing i don't think we're doing as good a job thinking about traceability con controllability and validation um it, it, and i think that's a huge concern um, if we don't know how a decision was made, it's really hard to understand whether it's in the best interest of humanity, right? We're going to have algorithms that are doing as bad or worse a job um, embedding biases into, I don't know, automated resume reviews or whatever system we happen to be looking at. So I think there's a lot of potential. Uh, there's clearly an edge case where, um, uh, you know, there's an alignment problem as well between here. I'm talking about general AI and human well-being, And, and with, without that alignment, we literally have something that could look like the Terminator, uh, you know, and, you know, and, and, and in full, and these are not problems that are simple to solve. If you look at, even in philosophy, utilitarianism, I don't know if, if you're familiar with that, but it's this idea that you want to maximize human flourishing and minimizing human suffering. Well, and which also tends to take into consideration future humans. Um, one really simple way to eliminate the future suffering of future humans is to just simply eliminate humans. Now, and, and and you say, well, we're not going to let AI do that. And the problem is, uh, there are certainly some folks in the field um, that have concerns that you can't keep strong generalized AI in the box, especially as we hand over 
more and more, you know, and it's not happened yet, but we're, we're inching towards, um, you know, increased use in the military increased use in policing and surveillance. Um, so there are all the good things that come, uh, but I don't think we're doing enough to kind of, you know, in the same way that we're not going to keep gene splicing in the box and someday I'll be able to order on Amazon, um, a molecular printer where I can make smallpox. Um, and you know, I, I don't know how to solve that, but it's, it, 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 to ignore that there is a maybe even small probability of these sort of existential crises looming, I think we're going to ignore it in the same way we, we've ignored it with pretty much everything as humans. And that could, that could be um, an ex event uh, or ex existential uh, event for us. So uh, I'm, I'm highly optimistic about the things that are happening. I think they're exciting. Um, you know, and I hope, I hope the world proves me wrong that I have this other concern about the, the, the bad side of technology. Well, certainly, uh, we're hoping ending on an optimistic note, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> complete annihilation of the human race. Yeah. Well, you know, we, we actually, actually started our, one of our very first uh, podcasts, maybe our first was, should we be scared of AI? And we actually kind of really went into it because a lot of people uh -huh. talked about it. We actually very popular. We have a whole series called ethical and responsible use of AI. Mm -hmm. And, you know, part of, part of what makes us feel everybody should be aware of the possibility of algorithms and the mm -hmm. algorithmic decision-making, especially data-driven and all that sort of stuff. There, There is reasons for conceptual concern, but the reality is that we see the actual sausage that's being made here, and yeah. these systems are, uh, like, we're like we say, well, if you're ever worried, there's a really funny, um, one, of our, one of our podcast interviews go, well, you know when to be worried when your Siri can tell you a good joke. Like when mm -hmm. your AI, when your, when your conversational system can just come up with a joke and make you laugh, that's when you should be worried. Uh, until then, when you ask them, should I wear a jacket today? And your uh, Alexa device is confused by a, what's a pretty basic question, then I think mm -hmm. uh, we are not yet at a level of uh, concern. There's something we talk about called the DIKUW pyramid. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Mm -hmm. Is this idea that uh, you, you try to get um, increasing levels of value from data. It, it's, a, it's more of a, an, it's an analytics concept where the D is mm -hmm. data and I is information. So you connect data together to get information. Then you try to extract knowledge from the information, find the patterns, which is actually where we are right now. That's the layer we're at with machine mm -hmm. learning. Then on top of that, you want understanding. That's the U layer, which is why are these patterns happening? And then, which which we don't quite yet have, that's common sense, machine reasoning. We haven't quite figured that out. Thinking machine days, right? Goes right. back to symbolic systems. And then, which is what I'm saying, maybe we'll get back to that. And then on top of that is this idea of wisdom, which is knowing what to do. Mm -hmm. and the systems are slowly climbing their way up, but but there are some fundamentally very difficult um, problems, computing problems to mm -hmm. work your way up, where you have to get some, you know big leaps in in uh, research to get there. Yeah, it, uh, and from my perspective, um, you know, I, I as I mentioned earlier, I think we are on an inflection point where it starts to go exponential. Um, I mean. It's probably always been exponential. But we've been on the bottom of that hockey stick, uh, and I think we're we're making the turn, and 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 the rate of improvement is going to increase substantially. And yeah. most of the business systems we have are perfectly yeah, our, our, har har harmless, except for maybe you know for democracy, but um, it's pretty but, but but <laughs> they're certainly in the research space. Um, there's, there is, um, there's, there's a lot of really great work being done. I mean, it's right. exciting, but it, it well, um, well, it, we encourage our, our listeners. We can, uh, we could, we can, and will chat with you Bob, yep. for, for a long time. So, um, you know, encourage our listeners to actually stay tuned because we are, are on Bob's, uh, interview, Bob Payne's fantastic. Yeah. 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 Well, so we, we may pick up this conversation or we'll probably go a slightly different direction. Uh, but I want to be respectful and mindful of our uh, podcast listeners' time. You, you have been fantastic. A lot of the ideas we just talked about near the end, we have a lot of things you can listen more into. Great. But even some of the ideas that you talked about earlier on project management, project management ideas, 
That is stuff that we encourage folks to go and listen to the Agile Toolkit podcast. We're going to definitely link to it in our show notes. Uh, We will promote it. We want people to go out there and expand their knowledge horizon, have that growth mindset. So I just want to thank you so much, Bob, for your fantastic participation, great insights, and sharing with our AI Today listeners uh, your history and background. Great. Uh, Thanks, Kathleen and Ron. Appreciate, uh, Appreciate being on. Yeah, thanks so much. And as Ron mentioned, we will also be on the Agile Toolkit podcast. So we'll link our interview there and we'll also link the podcast in case you want to check out additional episodes. We'll also link to our free intro to CPMAI course, aitoday.live slash CPMAI in the show notes so that you can just click on the link and it'll take you right there, as well as our AI glossary. I know we talked about a lot of terms today on this podcast. Some of them are in our AI glossary and some of them are more project management Uh, terms. But we definitely encourage you to check out the glossary if you'd like to dig a little bit deeper. Like this episode and want to hear more? With hundreds of episodes and over 3 million downloads, check out more AI Today podcasts at aitoday.live. Make sure to subscribe to AI Today if you haven't already on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, Amazon, or your favorite podcast platform. Want to dive deeper and get resources to drive your AI efforts further? We've put together a carefully curated collection of resources and tools handcrafted for you, our listeners, to expand your knowledge, dive deeper into the world of AI, and provide you with the essential resources you need. Check it out at aitoday.live slash list. This sound recording and its contents are copyright by Cognolytica, all rights reserved. Music by Matsu Gravas. As always, thanks for listening to AI Today, and we'll catch you at the next podcast. <laughs>